While investigating mysterious activities in the world diamond market, 007 discovers that his evil nemesis Blofeld is stockpiling the gems to use in his deadly laser satellite. With the help of beautiful smuggler Tiffany Case, Bond sets out to stop the madman as the fate of the world hangs in the balance making its premiere in London and opening in the UK on the 30th of December 1971, but opening in the USA a couple of weeks earlier on the 17th of December. Diamonds Are Forever is the seventh James Bond film and costs $7.2 million to make, bringing in $116 million at the worldwide box office. Starring Sean Connery and directed by Guy Hamilton, the vital statistics are Conquests 1, Martini 0, Kills 7, Bonds James Bonds 1. Back in 1971, Variety said, James Bond still packs a lethal wallop in all his cavortings, still manages to surround himself with scantily clad sex pots, yet Diamonds Are Forever doesn't carry the same quality or flair as many of its predecessors. So to discuss Diamonds Are Forever this week, we are joined by Calvin, Joe and Bill. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hello, I'm Calvin Dyson and I have a YouTube channel where I discuss and make videos about all things Bond, books, games, films, and uh, that was that gave me pause for thought then, James, when you said Conquests won. I thought like, mm-hmm. no, that can't be true, and then I was like thinking, like, oh no, yeah it is, I'm, I'm surprised about that. <laughs> uh, doing these statistics, the one thing that I found interesting was like, up until this, Connery did the Bonds, James Bonds, like very rarely in the films, in fact, Lazyby mm. tied him in one movie up until this point. Huh? Sorry, tangents already. <laughs> Joe or Bill, go for it. I am Joe Darlington. I am head of section from Being James Bond, YouTube, podcast, etc., etc. And uh, as always, I'm very happy to be here with you guys. Thank you for having me. And I'm uh, Bill Koenig with the uh, blog The Spy Command. And I actually saw this movie the night of December 17th in the U.S. Saw it the first night. You win the mystery prize, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to kick off with the one with. So what is the motif you could hang your hat on for this film? Uh, What would you put on the minimalist poster? Um, If you had to describe this film to a casual moviegoer, you would describe Diamonds Are Forever is the one with... The sleaze. <laughs> I, would, I, I, think I, I think I first came across this description in, I think it's Mark O'Connell's um, Catching Bullets book that I think he described this as being the, the sort of the sleazy bond or something like that. Mm. And I, that's really stayed with me ever since I read that. And I agree, it is kind of like the film version of when you've been out at the pub on a Friday night after work and you haven't eaten properly and you're a bit drunk and you stink of stale (laughs) cigarettes and you should probably go home, but the bell's just rung for last orders and you're still sort of having a good time. So you're determined to keep on having fun. It's sort of like a a movie encapsulation of that. And I don't know if it's just because of the, um, you you know, there's some, you know, they're they're in Amsterdam and Las Vegas, for God's sake, for the majority of the running time, (laughs) which are two locations that have, you know, certain connotations. And, um, I, I don't know. It's, there's a crassness to it. Um, there's a bit of a skeeziness to it. It, It's not as classy as the other bonds. Um, but I, I kind of like it for that in a way. Like a trip to the kebab shop. You might regret it later. Exactly that. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll jump in and go next because I want to piggyback off of what Calvin said. It's, it, it is funny, you know, since we're, since we just sort of passed the 50 year anniversary of, of this, um, this film, I remember feeling like, you know, boy, when they, when they do the, um, if somebody puts a trip together, you know, a 50th anniversary <laughs> trip to these locations, I'm going to have to tell my girlfriend, honey, I'm going to Amsterdam and, and Las Vegas. Is that okay? <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. I, good luck with that one. Um, so yeah, with with that in mind, uh, yeah, I, I do sort of agree. It is the one that does feel um, like it's almost like you could all the actors sort of are. You could tell they're all hungover from the night before and doing the best they can to get through their shots. Um, but with that in mind, I'll say it's the one with Las Vegas because I sort of feel like that's the thing that that just always sticks out with me, and it's. It's not just that it's Las Vegas, but it's it's Las Vegas in nineteen the early nineteen seventies, mm. um, and that's a very distinctive look. And I feel like every set sort of screams this era. Um, so it's it's real specific. So, but uh, so the, yeah, that that's it for me. It's just it's the one with Las Vegas, and mm. and I feel like you can't ever go back to that exactly. Yeah, the, which is now basically Fremont Street, right? The Vegas yeah, right. of this film. Right, all of all of that old Vegas is pretty much Fremont Street, and all the new stuff is just a whole different animal. So yeah, yeah, Bill. Well, um, Joe kind of took mine, but that's fine. I'll I'll <laughs> I'll go uh, something else. Um, one of Connery's worst hair pieces. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got one, the better the one. With, <laughs> the one with the rug. Yeah, I mean, you know, you compare, you know, you compare Connery and you only live twice. And then this thing four years later is like, what? This is the same guy? Uh, Just now people say, oh, he's too heavy in diamonds. He's a little heavier. I don't think he's that much heavier. I I think part of it's just the hairpiece. But there were stories published at the time, just before this movie came out, where Connery insisted on the uh, hairpiece being thinner because, you know, James Bond ages, my James Bond's going to age and that stuff. So it, it's a poor observation compared to Calvin and, uh, and Joe, but uh, I'll toss that in there. I, I think, yeah. you, I think you got the better one, frankly. I think you should be mm-hmm. glad that I, I stole Vegas from you. Cause that's, that to me is a good one. And I, and I, and I, I think he's probably onto something when Connery says that, that his, his piece should age with him. Otherwise he'd be looking like William Shatner and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the bond cocktail this is the meat of the podcast so um the bond formula has often been broken down into several ingredients these could include things like teaser titles plot women villains allies bond himself action locations dialogue and what we've come to discover on this podcast style just means anything that doesn't fit um <laughs> so is there uh, a unique ingredient to this particular film or which of these ingredients is particularly unique to this film and can be a positive or a negative aspect. So who wants to throw in the first ingredient? Can can I do that? Um, Pre-titles. First of all, it's the last gun barrel with Bond wearing a hat. It's Mm. also the last John Barry gun barrel to have the electric guitar because Barry considered only Connery was worthy of the electric guitar. So with uh, Roger Moore and then much later with uh, Timothy Dalton, it was strings. And, and of course, we have the, one of my favorite Bond lines very early in the pre-titles, Kai, Kai, Cairo, where the sound <laughs> and the lip movements don't match in the least. And it's just so funny. I think that's the universal call symbol of, like, is the person a Bond fan if you just say Ka- Ka- Cairo? And if, exactly. they, if they start laughing and grinning, then they're a Bond fan. That and uh, opening crater, closing crater. That that's another one, but yeah, that that's you only live twice, of course. But yeah, yeah. What did you when you saw that originally, nineteen seventy one, Bill? What can you remember? What you thought of that opening pre titles Connery being back and everything, and it was just basically him and a knife fight and a pile of baked uh, mashed potatoes. Like, 
I was I was so awed. <laughs> Just like it's Connery. You know, it, something else about this movie. I've uh, something. Uh, this actually relates to something we were talking about before recording, and I won't go into who said this. But in uh, the late '90s, I was at a uh, party of James Bond fans, and so somebody went up to a quote prominent James Bond fan, gave a detailed critique of this movie, and, you know why it was lacking, and the prominent James Bond fan replied, "Yeah, but it's got Connery in it." So as if that you know, <laughs> as if that wipes away all the sins of the movie. Did that um, prominent James Bond fan also like Never Say Never Again for that reason? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, probably <laughs> probably so bill you're going with pre-titles all right yeah joe calvin what's you want to throw in do you want to go first joe uh sure uh I'll, I'll go with one that i think is probably probably no one's gonna gonna grab and uh i'll say the dialogue and and i kind of i think anybody who's ever watched any of my stuff knows that i quote, sort of have a weird relationship with diamonds or forever and i i tend to pick on it all the time for for a lot of different things um, but but there's something about the dialogue in this film that I kind of feel like it, it you know you you know that there's a very capable hand doing this dialogue. There there are some there are some bits of dialogue in this film that I'm just sort of scratching my head, going, what what, what was that? <laughs> what what does that mean exactly? Um, and then there there are others that are just kind of gems, and, and I feel like to, like like to kind of add to the sleaziness, you know, we, that we talked about already. You know, when when he says something about blondes and he says, well, so provided the collars and the cuffs match. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I kind of felt like even for James Bond, that that to me is like, ooh, that that's that's really close. It, it's it's really close to the edge of, of what, what I think he should be doing. But but it works. And I kind of, you know, have to give it credit. So, yeah, I, I, I find that this one is very quotable. You know, there's so many great quotes in, in this film, um, even, even things like I got a brother. Like just okay, you know. It just it, we'll, that, we'll just we'll that's just, another one that Bond fans you know, you you, hey, right. you go up to one hey, and say I got a brother. They know what I you're talking about instantly. <laughs> right. I mean, in, so Joe, yeah. Joe, I'm just about sorry. I'm sorry about in the same scene you're describing. He also asks Tiffany how she got her name. It's like I was born there. My mother was shopping for a wedding ring, and then he responds, "Well, I'm glad for your sake it wasn't Van Cleef and Arpel." <laughs> right, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, it it it, it is so good, and I mean, it, it, even the one about uh, alum elementary dear lighter, I kind of feel like, right. even to this day, I feel like it conjures up more questions than than actually answers. Um, <laughs> but but again, it's 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 so good that you know I I can't this that's one part of this film that I absolutely cannot pick on. I have to agree there. If I if I do get anything out of this film, it's definitely like the comedy, and I think it, you have to come into it with that mindset. This isn't uh, an action thriller film like most of the films in this series are. I think it is more out and out comedy than a lot of them. Um, and I'm I'm kind of going to piggyback a bit off of that, Joe. Actually, for for my choice here, because I'm gonna um, I'm gonna cite Jill St. John's Tiffany case as being uh, one mm. of the elements that I think particularly shines in this one, and um, yeah, maybe she could even be a, a termed an underappreciated element as well. I think that she's when you look at the Bond girls, like the leading Bond girls up to this point, like mm. Diana Rigg, obviously fantastic actress, Honor Blackman, fantastic actress, and I think all of the others have a certain charm and personality and energy that they bring to the film but i think that jill st john's up with those two in terms of like 
really good like actress kind of in this role. I think she she's really spunky and she can deliver a quip just as well as Connery can. And I think that's necessary for this dialogue. They've got a good rapport in a lot of scenes. Um I, I think she she really suits the vibe of this. And I think the casting in this instance was really spot on. I think they were very lucky to get her. I don't know if Bill, if you want to chime in on this, but like I have my suspicions about the casting of Jill St. John. Um, well, uh, as I recall, there was this uh, lawyer who was thought to be mobbed up named Sidney Korshat, who uh-huh. was apparently played a vital role in getting her, getting her into the movie. And if I remember correctly, the initial intention was to have her play Plenty O'Toole, and then she ends up being the the female lead. Right. And, hmm. Allegedly, reportedly, we couldn't possibly comment. Right, Bill? Right. Um, <laughs> but like in, the, in 1976, the New York Times did a multi-part series about Sidney Korshak, and uh, I was 18 when I read it. It was like, I mean, it was like a huge... They 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 sick their uh, main investigative reporter Seymour Hirsch, who was employed by them at the time on this series, and so yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, the series <clears throat> didn't mention diamonds are forever specifically, but I then you know years later read uh, accounts where you know Korshak was involved in getting uh, Jill St. John in the movie. And those other accounts, not part of the Eon history, about how certain locations suddenly opened up and were available. Um, yes. <laughs> Sorry to tread on you, Kevin. You talking uh, about? Well, that, you know that put a dark shadow <laughs> over my comments. Um, well, you know what? I'm you happy. What, oh, go on. I'll, I'll jump in and try to rescue a little bit because I think oh, one of the things that I think is <laughs> one of the things about Jill, Jill St. John that I think should really be said too is she's one of the Bond actresses who will speak very highly of being a bond girl she you know mm, i remember the the uh the documentary the, the bond girls are forever and they interviewed a lot of leading the leading bond actresses and you know a lot of them seem to have sort of a love-hate relationship with being a bond girl you know you, you're sort of typecast etc cetera, etc cetera. uh jill and john just raves about it she raves about it uh she loves it she says you know if you, if you don't like having been a bond girl you're sort of a poor sport um, and, and I really, <clears throat> I really like that about her. I think she really, you know, again, j- just, just had nothing but good, good feeling about it. And that, that was very refreshing. Yeah. Mm. Giving some side eye to Jane Seymour there. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, and also Jill St. John was an established actress. It wasn't like she was a, you know, unknown. I mean, she right. was in the, she was in the pilot to the Adam West Batman movie. She was in movies with, uh, uh Frank Sinatra. I mean, she was, I mean, she was not an unknown, which mm. some Bond girls are, but uh, also dated George Lazenby. Yeah, mm. that's just true. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's, it's you know, whatever happened behind the scenes, it, you know, it wasn't like she was a rookie actress, not at all. What do you think of her character's um, journey, Calvin, on this film? Um, well, I mean, <laughs> she definitely starts out very tough and brash and she becomes a bit more comedic <laughs> by the end of it let's say um i i think it's all in good fun though and i think she performs it quite well even when she's you know mincing around the oil rig at the end and i think it's lovely that she has charles gray to play off as well 
I think I might have said this in one of our watch-alongs, if I could have a sitcom of her, Charles Grace Blofeld, and Dr. Metz on that oil rig, I would be totally up for that sitcom. Like, I think that'd be fantastic. Oh, hey. hey, Blofeld. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ernst. Sorry. Hey, Ernst. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Showing a bit more cheek than usual. I, I love that whole bit. I, I think they play off each other really nicely. It's, um, yeah. Yeah, I think she's, I think she's great. By the way, in that same sequence, Bond refers to her as the Dragon Lady. Now, I suspect a lot of people aren't really sure what that refers to. The Dragon Lady was a uh, character in the Terry and the Pirates comic strip, which mm. was still being published when this movie came out. I think it was published until ni- 1973. The original creator quit to you know do something else, but uh, they were mm. still publishing... Uh, you know, tearing the pirates in, in newspapers uh, at the time. I wonder if we're at that point now, because, um, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, um, there was the annotations of Ian Fleming book that came out, right, which was all the cultural contexts of Fleming's writing because it was too divorced from the readers now. I wonder if we're at that point now where, like, some of these scripts need to be explained. Like, mm. Mm. Like you just pointed out, Bill, like there's these callbacks to things that have long been lost. We're two generations back now from this movie, right? Well, that's certainly true of the novels because the Diamonds Are Forever novel, uh, it doesn't just mention it. He basically, like, well, today in the computer age, we would call it a cut and paste. He basically reproduced a column by the sports writer named Jimmy Cannon. Right. It's like, who's Jimmy Cannon? And uh, the Thunderbolt novel refers to a, a New York Times journalist named Arthur Crock. Well, who's Arthur Crock? Well, he was a big deal in his day. And the Man with the Golden Gun novel, you know, refers to uh, uh, Profiles in Courage, which was written, well, well, it was credited, shall we say, to John F. Kennedy, because I think JFK had a, <laughs> a support and actually write it. But uh, yeah, so there's the, these references in the novels that, some people are like shaking their heads. It's kind of like watching a Warner Brothers cartoon where they say, is this trip really necessary? Well, that actually goes back to World War II and gas rationing. But, you know. Right. The, I, you I, know yeah, that's my point is I think we're at that point now where the early films, they probably need some explanations, some of these more obscure well, lines. Well, with Dr. No, of course, you have a British flag flying in uh, Jamaica, which when they filmed it, it was, you know, Mm, it was a, right. it was an actual colony, but it was you know it became independent by the time they had the uh, the movie came out. Okay, so underappreciated elements. Um, this is a good film to tackle this topic. Um, what thing, big or very very small, would you like to bring to people's attention next time they watch this movie? Uh, I would like like to bring attention to two members of the American stunt team because mm. on this film. You had two stunt coordinators, one for the UK, Bob Simmons, who was back after one picture absence. But the guy for the American sequences was named Paul Baxley. And he was a veteran stuntman even by this point. And he had like almost been killed working on a 1963 movie called The Ugly American, where there was this runway truck. And I saw this photo. I believe it was posted by the Behind the Stunts account on Twitter, I think. But it, it's a very striking photo. It looks like he's about to get crushed. He managed to get out of the way. His shirt got torn, but that was it. That was, you know. Um, anyway, he was, you know, doing the, the stunt coordination for the American sequences. 
and he doubled Connery in the Bambi and Thumper sequence because uh, the reason I know this because I saw this other photo was of this behind the scenes thing at that uh, Palm Palm Desert whatever wherever that house was that they filmed it and so in the foreground of this you know it's between sh- between shots and Connery's with his white shirt pink tie and white white slacks and in the background there's Paul Baxley in the in an identical outfit so Uh yeah so he was you know doubling connery for that sequence and then the other uh guy um stunt guy was named dick crockett and he is in the on the oil rig sequence he is the guy who's supposedly lowering the uh mini sub into the water with blofeld in it and i didn't realize he was in this movie until we were doing the watch along (laughs) for this movie like what there's dick crockett um crockett was in a number of movies uh directed by uh blake edwards and on some of them he also was credited as like associate producer so he worked you know in front of the cameras and behind the cameras um he was in the a pink panther movie i think it's called the pink panther strikes again where he's playing the president of the united states and his president is clearly modeled on gerald ford He's stumbling and bumbling and like, Mr. President, come in here. And he runs in and falls down. Um, yeah, but he had a long, very productive career. He died of a heart attack, I think, in the late 70s or so. But uh, they were both, you know, um, veteran, accomplished stuntmen. They had worked together on, on some projects, which m- my guess is that Baxley probably hired... Uh, rocket to work on the film but uh anyway a minor thing but i just wanted to bring it up yeah so for it doesn't really get covered much but this film basically had two crews didn't it bill which is the u.s crew and the uk crew so if you look at very closely the title sequence you'll see like costume designers two of them stunt arrangers two of them set decorators set decorators two of them yeah and one's the american one's the brit and also um depends on which print you see so I have a VHS copy of this movie where Broccoli is, uh, gets top billing over Saltzman and the Americans get top billing <laughs> over the Brits. But my DVD copy, it's the other way around. Saltzman has top billing and then the, the British guys have top billing throughout. Hmm. Kevin? Um, I, I'd have to say underappreciated element, it would have to be Charles Gray as Blofeld in this. I've uh, really been on a journey with him over the years, because, uh, you know, yeah, th- this was only the second Bond film I saw, um, so it does have a bit of a special place in my heart. But his Blofeld is, I mean, yeah, he's he's nowhere near as uh, threatening or as menacing as Telly Savalas, Donald Pleasance, any of those. It's a completely different portrayal of the character um and charles gray's just doing his usual charles gray sort of thing uh but again i think it really works with the dialogue he's given and just the overall tone of the film i don't think it would have worked to have a genuinely menacing blowfeld mm. in this um just like jill st john and sean connery and you know bruce glover i think he can deliver a quip like he just like tosses off this dialogue so effortlessly um and again i think it re- he really vibes with the general light comedy elements of this one well just to piggyback off what you just said um mm. ray delivers one of my favorite lines in this whole movie it's where 
uh, Blofeld is showing Bond the setup, and he says, well, at present, the satellite is over. Pause. Kansas. Well, if we destroy Kansas, the world may not hear about it for years. <laughs> I love that one. It's, it's I, so I, I, I use that in real life quite a lot. <laughs> Just substitute Kansas to whatever, you know, which... Some fuck location you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine Telly Savalas in oh, this no. doing the you know right idea wrong pussy line? I mean, yeah. it just just wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Yeah. I, th- I think he's kind of pitch perfect. And I I don't know, James. Maybe you perhaps know some of the behind the scenes stuff as to how he actually got cast in this. Was there some kind of mafia involvement in this? <laughs> Not so you- Charles Gray. <laughs> um, let me do some digging while you keep talking, and I'll look at my notes. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> uh, I'm just curious, because I, I feel like I um, I don't see much about, you know, in the official texts and DVD documentaries, commentaries, all that. No. They kind of gloss over it, really. O- official history for this movie is very scant. Um, mm. It really focuses predominantly on how to get Connery back and the fact that they finished on time. And that's like the two stories that they always tell. Yeah. Um, the fact that they split the crews between two different countries never really mentioned. Mm. You know, it's, this this film's one of the most, I think, poorly documented mm. of the series. Mm. Um, maybe because there hasn't been a lot of interest in it, mm. generally compared to the others. Um, well, again, as an example of of the two crew things, it's, again, I've seen both versions of this. You had two film editors, one British, Burt Bates, and one American, John W. Holmes. And I've seen two versions where Bates gets top billing and then hmm. other versions where Holmes gets top billing and it's all throughout it's very strange i mean clearly this was done intentionally you 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 know it wasn't an accident hmm so what do you think that the the ones with the like the british editor credited were for you know the uk and the vice versa for the americans something like that yeah something like that i mean huh. i it seemed to be tied to you know whether broccoli or saltzman got top billing hmm. uh in the in the credits um i mean i don't know for sure but it's it's definitely there and because with uh john w holmes the american film editor he had the ace thing so with the british uh titles which i rewatched a couple hours before this it says editors burt bates and john w holmes comma ace but in the american version it's uh John W. Holmes with the AC below his name and Burt Bates. Hmm. I know it's like you know, it's like Bill. You read the credits too closely, but you know, it's like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, oh, but, I love yeah, this stuff. I've just looked through our interview notes, Calvin, and I can't. I don't think I can disclose who told us this, oh. uh, but the line was that um, they obviously had planned to bring Gert Frode back for this film. Oh, of course, yes. Oh, um, yeah. An so idea they, which originally came up with Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. Mm. So and like was a, this, this was still kicking around. Yeah, and the switch obviously to just go back to Blofeld came quite late in the production in the sense of who they had an eye on. And the uh, the quote we were given was, um, he was a very uh, cheap choice. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> meaning that, you know, when Connery's pay deal got, secured they had to cut corner somewhere and um Mm. he was available Mm. Mm. charles gray was available the other odd thing about charles gray he was only two years older than connery was now you know his hair is all gray and you know and they're trying to make connery as young looking as he can but they they were you know comparable ages Mm. yeah 
The other thing I've got in my notes from that interview was that Faye Dunaway and Jane Fonda were considered for uh, Tiffany Case. Huh. I'm glad Faye it ended up being Jules and John. Mm-hmm. What was that, Joe? I, I could see Faye Dunaway. Yeah. I feel like yeah. she, I, I could sort of just see her in that role. Yeah. More than Jane Fonda. Yeah. Um. So I'll go with mine. Mine's going to be a weird, another weird one, but I'm going to go with the time frame. Um, the fact that it's sort of set in the early seventies. And it's interesting because when you watch it jump from on her majesties, which I kind of feel does a pretty fair job of being fairly timeless. Then you go to diamonds of forever, which is very ensconced in the early seventies. Um, I, I'll tell you, (laughs) Bill, Bill, you'll appreciate this. Um, my mother-in-law, you know, when I come home at night, she's usually got the TV on and she's kind of watching the game shows and she's always watching the old game shows and she's been watching this one this one show called match game which i kind of grew up with and if you like if, if you know for you for you guys who are over in the uk you might not appreciate this but match game was <laughs> sort of a staple and it it was very very much of a, a, a of its time there's a lot of you know wide ties and the suits are just from that time period and everybody's smoking. Oh, um, in the UK, the, it was blankety blank. Oh, there you go. Ah. So, right. <laughs> so, yeah, everybody's smoking. There's a whole lot of kissing going on. It's just stuff that we, when you look at it today, you're like, boy, you wouldn't have that today. Um, <laughs> I, there was Somebody made a comment, and it stuck with me, that you know, six, the 60s was the time of the sexual revolution, but the 70s is when all the salacious bestsellers came out. And... I, I kind of feel like that's I, maybe that's beca- that's why I'm sort of kind of rediscovering diamonds a little bit because it does live in that era again. Wide ties, it's a little sleazy. Um, you know, Connery with the you know, if 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 I didn't say Las Vegas, I would have said this is the one with Connery with the mutton chops and the big pink tie. You know, it's just got that sort of you know feel of it. Um, and, and the, the scenes of him in Las Vegas, again, much different than Las Vegas today. It actually kind of reminds me a little bit too, if you've ever seen the original oceans 11, mm-hmm. um, yeah. watching the original compared to today, it's like, wow, is that different? Um, it kind of reminds me of that a little bit. So yeah, I kind of feel like I, I do sort of enjoy it probably maybe just for that reason that it, that it, it is sort of a. A moment in time, a time capsule of the early seventies, and you know, for, you know, for that reason, I kind of gravitate toward it a little bit. Hmm. Well, I was also going to say uh, Las Vegas was still like the really hardcore gambling town. With Diamonds Are Forever, it has a lot more to do. It has a lot more in common with the original Ocean's Eleven than with Las Vegas today. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's funny how um, a movie on the cusp of the decade defined the decade. In that sense, right? Because yeah. I, I think of the '80s of Udo Killers being like condensed '80s, right, and smack in the middle of the decade. Mm-hmm. And Tomorrow Never Dies maybe being peak '90s, you know, on the other side of the halfway point. And here you got Diamonds of Forever being like archetypal '70s, but it's '71. Yeah, you, you know that. Now that you say that, I I kind of feel like I noticed that in a lot of areas. Like if you asked me. To, you know what is the quintessential 80s music i would probably think of things that came out in the early 80s if you ask me like what is quintessential 90s music i would probably think of at least the first half mm. of the 90s once you get past the midway point in the decade it starts to blur a little bit um so i wonder if that's 
I think. Yeah. I just don't think, has there ever been two back-to-back films in the Bond series where the style, the fashions and everything just takes that hard, right, you know, a hard 90-degree turn hmm. between two movies? Well, I'll, hmm. I'll tell you, I actually saw a double feature of Honor Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds Are Forever in the theater. Hmm. So it had been a year or two after this came out. And in a way, they're a little more connected uh, in terms of, Bond seeking revenge on Blofeld, but boy, stylistically, they are a lot different. Mm. And especially seeing it in a theater and seeing them back to back like that. Yeah. Alrighty. So, uh, trivia. Can you share a fact or tidbit about the film that you find particularly interesting? Well, uh, there's Bruce Cabot, who was uh, in the original King Kong in the 30s. And he apparently got this gig because he was a friend of uh, Albert R. Broccoli. And he was also a friend of John Wayne's because he's in several John Wayne movies like In Harm's Way, The War Wagon, Big Jake, The Green Berets, and, and others. Um, I guess this, this was his last film. Hmm. Yeah, he, he died shortly uh, afterwards. Uh, we were talking on the Majesty's podcast last week about. Um, Obviously, Irma Bunt Eel Steppert died four days after the premiere. Um, Bruce Cabot's in that kind of league of people who passed away, and this was his last Bond was his last role. Mm. Um, We've already kind of touched on um, this. I thought it was really interesting that the original villain of the thing was indeed they were going to bring back Gert Frobe and have it be, was it Goldfinger's twin brother who was going to be the, yeah, which would have been wild i can't even imagine like that would have been such a uh, obviously they were trying to recapture the goldfinger magic with this one um to the extent they're even going to recast the well cast the same villain <laughs> basically um but really interesting like how the, the precedent that that could have set uh i think would have been yeah interesting i'm, I'm glad it didn't end up that way as much as i love gert frobe and goldfinger i'm i'm happy that we ended up with charles gray as blofeld you know, if they had gone down that path, it would have been like the Dick Tracy comic strip where it's like, oh, you had Flattop and he got killed. But, oh, he's got a, he's got a brother named Blowtop. And mm. then, oh, he's got a son, Flattop Jr. Oh, he's, and then yeah. there were like multiple, you know, it's like Tracy ends up going up against like all these relatives of his classic villains. So it's like, yeah, it's best they didn't go that way. Yeah. Mm. Imagine, like, one minute they got twin villains, the next minute Bond dies and he has a kid. I mean, shit, where would they go next? Um, <laughs> ripping up the rule book. Uh, well, I'm glad no one mentioned Connery's paycheck, because if it wasn't that one, I would have had to talk about the, 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 the car stunt where the car flips back and forth, and I really didn't want to talk about that one. So, um, Yeah, I, I, I think one of the interesting things for me, trivia-wise, is, is the fact that Connery got a massive paycheck, which at the time I believe was the was the world record. He set a record for the highest paycheck ever for a film. Um, and I and the reason why I find that so fascinating is, first of all, I kind of feel like, you know, was that the right move? Knowing you're only going to get one more film out of him anyway, and you're gonna, you know, the, as soon as you're done with this one, you're right back to the drawing board. Gonna, you know, having to face the recasting challenge. Um, plus the rest of the film suffers because of it. I, I, you know, there's so many weird, I mean, w- one of the things that I always sort of, you, you talk about throwing popcorn at the screen, you know, just the, I, the, the special effects in this film 
are so terrible, so terrible to the <laughs> point where I, I always look at this and go, why didn't they just leave that out? I mean, I, I can't see that it enhances the film at all. Um, there's a shot of the satellite shooting a laser beam down. And I and I kind of look at it. And I go, I could do that with PowerPoint now. Forget about any <laughs> other special effects programs. I could literally probably do that right now with a PowerPoint presentation. Um, so, yeah, honestly, that that one just that, that just sort of makes me kind of scratch my head a little bit. Like, boy, I, I don't know. I mean, I understand Connery. To this day, he's still pretty legendary in, in you know, just 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 charisma and and overall box mm-hmm. office draw. Um, so I get it, but again, I, I it it only postponed the the pain of having to recast a little longer and and only two years. I mean, this is still back when we're doing a film every two years, and and regardless of recasting, they stayed on schedule. So. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I just kind of wonder, like, if I, I, I would, would have loved to be a fly on the wall and when that discussion was happening, you know, the, the discussion of getting him back at any cost. Well, in addition to his his paycheck, he also, if they went over schedule, he was yep. going to get, the, like, a lot of money yep. each week. And in Mankiewicz's first draft, after he took over from Maybaum, it was described how, you know, like... Um, Blofeld got away, but Bond caught up with him, and they eventually went somewhere in Mexico. And you know, eventually, yeah, I forget the details, but but Blofeld was killed definitively. And there was this thing, you know, he, Blofeld gets gr- ground up, and uh, Bond says he was the salt of the earth. Um, that was <laughs> that was Mankiewicz's line. But the the point what the point just being, find it funny how Blofeld was going to ground meat, and then years later Jimmy Dean would go on to make sausage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But the point being, it's like when you see the movie, it's like, what happened to Blofeld? We don't really know. And you know, but that was part. I, I assume part of it was well, like you know, if, if we film that ending, we're going to go over schedule. And we don't want to pay Connery that extra money. So. Right. Well, speaking of paying Connery extra money, because I'm glad you brought this up, Joe, because I completely forgot about this. I'm writing a piece right now about Connery's legal battles with Broccoli, and um, Mm. Diamonds is really interesting because the headline figure of $1.25 million will record salary and everything, and they make a big thing about how he donated it to the Scottish Trust Fund and everything, and he got his two movies. Well, that was Small Potatoes, because he actually made over $6 million on the back end of the film with percentages, Mm. and Connery being... Connery being Connery, negotiated <laughs> a even higher gross percentage take. So in other words, pennies from the pound of every ticket sold, regardless of break-even point, right? Off the top, in the UK and Ireland, he had a higher rate than in the States. Well, and, and-, and wait for it, that was the subject to some legal action Connery kicked off in the 80s because he felt he wasn't paid fully. And Eon, to this day have never released the UK and Ireland box office for Diamonds Are Forever. Mm. Well, and in addition to all that, I've heard, you know, they made a big deal about Connery donated that money to this trust he had founded, but that supposedly the trust did its banking with a bank where Connery either owned it or had a ownership percentage. So, yes, it was nice he donated the money, but it wasn't entirely uh, altruistic shall we say. But it was also the thin end of the wedge of what he made on that film. Right. Oh, yeah. The percentage yeah. was the, the key thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, what probably happened was he remembered how Dean Martin 
made more money for the silencers than he made for Thunderball. So it's like, I'm going to fix it on this one. Well, he did. He did. He did. <laughs> so final verdicts, guys. This is going to be an interesting one. I can usually predict these, but I have no idea now. Um, <laughs> diamonds are forever. Is it in your top tier, middle tier, and bo- or bottom tier? And by bottom tier, we're not saying it's a bad film necessarily. We're just saying it might be one you watch least. Um, so top, middle, or bottom... Who wants to shoot first? I'll go. We're, we're so uh, polite in this group. Bottom, <laughs> bottom tier towards the top of my bottom tier. Despite that, I have very fond memories of seeing this the first time in the theater because Connery's return was such a big deal. Um, but with, with, with years, I can kind of put it in more perspective. Um, I'm going to go next because I have similar sentiments to Bill there, actually. It's probably high in bottom tier, um, but it is one that I've kind of flip-flopped on over the years. Regardless, it does have a special place in my heart. It was the second Bond film that I ever saw after Moonraker, so it was very much a, a formative one for me. Um, and I think it's, it, it's yeah, if I'm in the right mood for the, for it and I just want a nice sort of comedy <laughs> spy film, it, it fits that bill really nicely and I can have a great time with it. So, yeah, I, I think it has a, a lot to offer. Uh, yeah, I, I'll kind of, oh, I'll just say it. it, it it's very much a low tier film for me um, with the caveat there, there really is no such thing as a bad bond movie. And, and, and again, I'm not just, I'm not just saying that because it's, you know, cause you have to, um, no, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, some of the bond films are these kind of tough, gritty thrillers and, you know, and we look at it as, as great cinema, others are fun. And, and I kind of find that this one, even though I regard it as, as pretty low tier, um, it does provide, as I sort of said earlier, I mean, I, I kind of find that it's very quotable. There's a lot of things that you always remember about this film. It, it, it's not one of the ones that I would call, you know, middling or boring or, you know, just kind of. And I mean, there's a, there's a few of them that I find are just sort of lukewarm and do what they're supposed to do. And and, and that's fine. This one, again, it's got a lot of kitsch. It's got a lot of uh, a lot of fun, a lot of silliness. And, and I kind of feel like it. It we like it for that so um yeah and I, so i find that even though it's certainly not one of my favorites certainly on the lower tier uh but it is absolutely one that i would if it was playing in my local theater oh i'd, I'd be there in a heartbeat big old tub of popcorn and 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 candy and and enjoying the hell out of it so all right so on brand for diamonds that's three bottoms um, <laughs> well, <laughs> with caveats, <laughs> <laughs> but it's back in UK cinemas this week, and um, I'm going to nick your line, Calvin, which is like go into this thinking it's a comedy and having a good time versus a serious spy thriller, and you'll probably enjoy it a lot more. Mm. And go for a laugh, and go see it if you're in the UK on the big screen, because this is one that very rarely gets shown on the big screen. Mm. Um, when people do film festivals and stuff, it's one of the ones that gets cut. So this is a rare opportunity to go see it. Um, otherwise, it's going to be ITV for on a Sunday afternoon. Um, mm. So have fun at the cinema. And next week, we'll be back for Live and Let Die. Thanks to Joe, Bill, and Calvin. See you next week. See you. Thank you. And remember, Kai, Kai, Cairo. <laughs> 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 <laughs>